Welcome to the Video Printer Movies Podcast. My name is Stephen T. Hanley. I'm the founder and lead creator of Deep Printer Movies. We are a pop-up cinema based in London, screening important contemporary cinema and overlooked gems. Today on the podcast, we have New York filmmaker Mike Balandic. Super happy to have Mike on the show. Also, FYI, we have all three of Mike's films streaming on our online platform. His films are unique, strange. They've got a great DIY quality. It was just a great fit. We love Mike's work. Just some quick show notes up front to fill you in on our conversation. We mentioned Kim's video. Kim's Video and Music is a now defunct rental store based in the East Village. It was like the cool video store to go to. Lots of the employees went on to become filmmakers and all the video store clientele were made up of like indie cool celebs like Jim Jarmusch and Chloe Sevenier. We also mention Sean Price Williams a few times. Sean is an incredible cinematographer based in New York. He works on tons of indie movies. I think he shot over 90 movies now. He shot over Safdie Brothers movies up until Uncut Gems. He works on all Alex Ross Perry's movies and he shot all of Mike's movies. He's incredible. Anything that he shot is usually worth checking out. Finally, we mentioned Mike's DJ sets. These were for Alara FM. You can find that on the Alara World website, which is the Safdies production company. Okay, that's it. Here's me and Mike Bills. I just saw an interview. I rewatched an old interview with him the other day that was so good, where he's got this like kimono on and like all these beads and, <laughs> and talking in this Italian accent like half the time. And it was, uh, I forgot how great it is to uh, listen to him. So I really am looking forward to uh, hearing that. <laughs> yeah, I really like the documentary where um, I think it's just after. Reservoir Dogs blew up where he goes back to the video store and he's got like a big in the soup poster and breathless poster in his room and stuff. I don't know if you've seen that one. I don't know if I have. That sounds pretty good. Yeah. Yeah. He says, there's an amazing quote where he says, um, all the people working in the video store that the, the only thing they've really got to show for their years of just being a hardcore movie geek is their opinion. And he just said, all the guys there just have a really good, well-informed opinion. It's the biggest takeaway they can have for all their years of being a cinephile. Yeah, no, it's funny. He really is the all-time champion, you know, of the video store culture. And I think that, like, now that everything is streaming and served in our faces from these platforms that there now really is a nostalgia for the video store experience, you know, and um, hearing those interviews that resonate harder now, but. (laughs) Do you think without video stores and that kind of pre-internet culture? Well, like I remember I had a local video store and a couple of bus rides away. I had a really good art house video store. Uh So if I wanted to rent any European titles or any, art house titles i'd have to take the two bus rides go to the video store i've got 24 hours to watch this and reckon with it even though i find it impossible like you know if you're trying a tarkovsky movie for the first time or something Uh but then you've got 24 hours to watch it reckon with it and then bring it back but i was always (laughs) just thinking since we don't have to work as hard are we going to lose that generation of walking encyclopedia of cinephiles like yeah 
No, I think there's always going to be complete hardcore maniacs, <laughs> you know, that are watching stuff. But the thing that's more depressing is just the, like, the way that these platforms, like, they've really killed off the search function, you know? Yeah. So it's like everything that people watch on YouTube, Netflix, Amazon, it's all literally what like 90% of what's watched is just what's on the homepage, you know, like they've made the search function even harder. So, and like the YouTube app, like it's impossible to type up any fucking crap for what you're trying to see. So everyone literally just watches what's on the homepage <laughs> right now. And, uh, yeah, it's a real fight to have quality curated stuff. And that's why I really, um, enjoyed what you guys were doing during the um, pandemic and stuff. And you guys, the Cinephobe, the Spectacle Twitch, the LR Radio, there's all these, you know, new platforms that are curated and, you know, kind of filling the void of, you know, the video store thing, which was a curated, um, accessible way to find obscure and weird stuff that's not necessarily institutionally um, vetted or canonized you know that's the weird thing that's why we started posting 10 cool movies that are on netflix or amazon which you may not know about because the second we started posting posting them people were like what how how did i not know this was on netflix or why has this not been suggested to me i think personally i made a breakthrough when i watched the larry cohen documentary on amazon which was great and ever since then, I just get suggested all the director bios, all the making of documentaries, and all the movies about movies. But yeah, the algorithm is crazy. It's really frustrating sometimes. You got to do so much digging to find stuff. Yeah, and it's crazy that now you need algorithms to be anti-algorithmic. You know, like I'm obsessed with this app called uh, Zero Views which just links you to a random YouTube video that has zero views. That's amazing. You know, so it's the opposite of what they're trying to force down your throat. So it'll just be like, you know, some people in this uh, volleyball practice in Thailand or like, you know, someone in the supermarket in Canada or just someone playing drums in, you know, out in the park, you know, it's like, so then, and they keep hearing about these other apps where it's like, I forget what it's called, where they just, give you like coordinate, random coordinates and say, just take a walk <laughs> to this random place, you know? And like, to me, that's exciting, you know? And I, I almost wish there was some type of a, like random function on Netflix or Amazon, you know, where they just- so start... Like the least viewed movie or something or? Yeah, I mean, that's the best. Yeah, the, uh, just some type of alternate way of serving you stuff, <laughs> you know? Like, I used to go to the, um, there used to be this record store I would go to, and they would have, a, you know, for like a dollar, it's like wrapped in newspaper, and you get like five CDs, you know, but you don't know what they are. Yeah. You know? And you'd find like the most insane, you know, most of it's garbage, but then you'd also just find the best stuff from being served something that is like garbage or random, you know? <laughs> I got really into these weird, almost, um, it's almost like a National Geographic type CDs. One was called, um, well, National Geographic via like lounge music. There was one called um, Jazz Wolf, uh -huh. which was just jazz guitar mixed with the sounds of wolves howling. <laughs> so I got, I, I got into that because that was so weird. And then there was Jazz Loon, which was, which was <laughs> like bird sounds, no, well, duck sounds with the guitar and then blues wolf which is my favorite which was just like <laughs> real cheesy you know like wolf howling at the moon type of imagery <laughs> with just like really cheesy blues licks on top interesting yeah i got this one this is like a zillion years ago i got one of these mystery packs from the record store and one of the cds was uh this group called the movement it's like a early 90s techno thing and they did a song called bingo they did like uh, you know, like B-I-N-G-O, Bingo is his name. Yeah. Uh, like a children's thing, but it's just like r rap, rave, high energy, <laughs> B-I-N-G-O song. And 
it's like the funniest fucking shit ever. And um, I wound up using it on one of, like, you know, we was doing this radio show uh, of dance music. And then, you know, we made a whole episode that was based on like rave music for children, you know, and wound up using that on that compilation. But it's like the genesis of it is from just being served something randomly, you know, um, which I think can be very inspiring. <laughs> what was it like working in Kim's video store? Oh man, it was great. It was, um, yes, yeah, so I was going, I went to NYU and, um, so I would just sort of hang out there mostly, uh, at first. And that's where, um, have you ever, have you been there before? No, it's one of those mythic places that I've just, well, I, I have a trauma. I never got to work in a video store. Uh-huh. <laughs> Every time I'd apply for my local blockbuster, I got turned down, which I, <laughs> I think it may have sparked my, why I became a creator. But yeah, I can't believe it. I never got to work in a fucking video store. I got to work in a record store, <laughs> nice. but it wasn't like Empire Records. So I was deeply disappointed. Uh-huh. No, you hear about all this, like, um, these like Zoomers that have some nostalgia for shopping malls, you know, that have never been to a mall before, you know, and <laughs> think of it as this mythic thing and watch these like YouTube videos all day of, you know, like 80s shopping malls, like can't understand that this was a real thing, you know, but I guess some people feel that way about these video stores, but um, yeah, no, Kim's was the shit. It was like, you know, just really the biggest, it was just gigantic and it was like right in the middle of the city and you know you could find stuff i never thought i would see there'd be like you know like godard bootlegs like history of cinema fassbender's world on a wire with no subtitles you know it just random chess franco movies just every obscure sort of thing you would want and yeah and like sean price williams the cinematographer he was really sort of the um like the leader (laughs) he sort of did a lot of the like uh curating and creating the sections and organizing it into this just sort of really incredible place. And, um, yeah, I wound up just hanging out there all the time and got a job there. And, uh, it was cool. Cause it was like a mix of, you would get like, you know, just weird porn people and just crazy people and just people from the neighborhood. And then you, but also, you know, you have like David Bowie, you know, renting stuff and Benicio del Toro and Chloe Seventy and just a just a really crazy mix of people and you really kinda got to know everyone in the city through through it. And it was a great place to actually meet people, you know, in real life. So it was great. Did you have to work hard or was it like the dream of just hanging around talking movies all day and choosing what you have on the T V? It was absolutely the dream. Yeah, there's no work whatsoever. <laughs> it's just like, it was like overstaffed. We just would play obnoxious stuff, be rude to people, <laughs> you know, and there was security too. So, you know, if someone's annoying, you can <laughs> kicked out. And uh, no, it's one of those things, it's almost hard to believe that it, it was really just fun. You know, it was, it was just fun, <laughs> which is the best type of job. When I got the job in the record store, I thought it was just be like Empire Records. And then it was more just like carry this humongous crate of sale CDs up 20 stairs and then de-sticker it all <laughs> in an hour because then you're due on tills. And I was like, wait, well, I thought I could listen to like Can all day and just chill out and impress people with my music knowledge. And they're like, no, go sit in the stock room and de-sticker all this shit. And then tell me when you're done because there's... 10 more boxes downstairs. And I was like, oh, okay. (laughs) Nice. Yeah. And it was the kind of thing where we were really lucky that it was like right before social media took over everything, you know, because you could really just be an asshole, you know, (laughs) and uh, it was okay, you know. (laughs) I think people would not, um, yeah, I don't know. I think people would be more uh, outraged, I think. and uh... <laughs> Yeah, I, I think when the internet and things like Amazon <laughs> took over, of uh, how much you could get away with being like a snarky record store or m- movie <laughs> nerd kind of went down when you're trying to like fight for survival. You couldn't really. Yeah. No, 
it's interesting. So Sean just got a new, he just moved to the Upper East Side. And uh, I was at his apartment two nights ago. And he really has the largest collection of stuff of anyone <laughs> I know. So it's like I have a handful of these friends where their, you know, houses are really sort of scratches that itch, you know, <laughs> like just perusing the uh, shelf and just uh, and it's kind of a facsimile of that experience getting to like see all this stuff. Do you still but, collect yeah. physical media like DVDs for audio commentaries and shit like that? I don't collect, not really. I like kind of, I moved a couple years ago and I, like when I went through all my old stuff, it was like, you know, I had a hundred boxes of mini DV tapes. I'm like, what the fuck are these? <laughs> I don't even know what's on any of these fucking things. And got really had like a kind of a meltdown over all the stuff that I have. So I, um, I don't collect as much as I used to, but I, I'll still, if I really want something, I'll, I'll get it, but I'm not as OCD as I was, but yeah. I think I have about, wait, one, two, about a couple hundred left. And uh-huh. all this is only the shit that will not get put on streaming or beautiful criterion restorations of stuff. But that's kind of my two rules for keeping stuff now of. Yeah, no, and you realize how important it is. I, I watched uh, Happiness a couple nights ago, the Tatsalans movie. And it's not, on, it's, that's like a huge movie. And it, it's not on any of the platforms. You know, and like the VHS is like super expensive and I was, you know, had to borrow it from a friend. You realize kind of um, that these things can disappear. Yeah. So it is important. It's really important. I was trying to find Trees Lounge for Steve Buscemi movie, which is nowhere. It's, um, I, I think I bought the DVD and it was released by Pioneer, you know, like the tech label. And I was like, oh, this is weird. This is probably... They maybe ventured into home entertainment for a couple of years in the DVD boom. And that's probably um, like out of print with like a defunct pioneer as a distributor or something weird like that. It, yeah. I'm, I'm, now that you're mentioning it, I want to rewatch that. I, I saw it when it came out and I really liked it. But uh, Yeah, that yeah. and um, Animal Factory were spectacular. Oh my God. I rewatched part of Animal Factory recently and it was... Uh, Shocking. <laughs> Crazy cost. Like, really like, good cost. Tom Arnold, like, raping Edward Furlong. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, uh, bathroom is in the most disgusting way possible. It was, uh, really traumatic. Mickey Rourke in drag. It, that, that part is so incredible. Yeah, doing some, like, monologue about, like, wanting to go to Paris or something. Yeah. See the orchids or like, something. Really cool John Lurie score and stuff. Yeah. It's... Yeah. Shit, I gotta rewatch that. <laughs> Do you follow him on Instagram? It's amazing. He's like, it's so good. Like he's one of these guys. I don't like, uh, has the boomer energy that I like, you know, it's like just him, like lifting weights and walking his dog and like, yeah, just like (laughs) UFC fights and rescue dogs. And yeah. And he's got this crew. That's just so like, yeah, all this like sort of male plastic surgery, like tough guy, there, yeah, I don't know. I'm into it, definitely. I wish, um, yeah, I've never met him. I was, um, for a second, going to work on a project that never happened, that he was going to be in, that I, I wish happened. But, uh, yeah, he's a mi- mysterious. <laughs> yeah, I think people don't realize how, I was telling one of the people who work with me, there was, they, kind of, they only know Mickey Rourke as, like, the plastic surgery guy. Uh-huh. And I was like, no, go back to like nine and a half weeks and Angel Heart and uh, Rumblefish. I mean, the guy's got chops. He's an incredible an actor. I remember Alan Parker was saying that him and De Niro were like the best actors he ever worked with. Completely. Yeah. Um, Homeboy is pretty sick also. Oh, that's when he got into boxing? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> What did you grow up watching? What were the movies that really stood out for you or kind of made you want to be a filmmaker? Um, well, I guess in like early on, I was very just really liked anything that was kind of just lowbrow and uh, 
like gross out transgressive comedy or horror stuff, you know, um, like trauma type movies. And I was, yeah, just like very anti like highbrow stuff. I definitely like my very first memory of any movie ever is seeing um, Fantasia and like crying because I hated the scene where they're conducting the <laughs> symphony. And I was like, why isn't it just, you know, Mickey Mouse doing dumb stuff. You know, I don't want to see this guy conducting a symphony. This is so horrible. <laughs> like, and, uh, yeah, I just, um, I would like get the TV guide every Sunday and like circle every movie that had one star or zero stars, you know, and just like wake up at, you know, five in the morning to watch, you know, like half a loaf of Kung Fu or something, you know, just whatever the worst thing possible was. And, um, and like, sadly, I think that became an aspiration to be like, maybe someday I can make something really terrible <laughs> that everyone hates, <laughs> <laughs> you know, rather than, uh, you know, I want to make something great that wins an Academy Award. Um, so, but yeah, that was, I like just, you know, I got really into like, uh, we had this um, show called USA Up All Night here. That's like, um, it was Gilbert Godfrey hosted it and Rhonda Shear and it was like late night, like curated, like um, just like B, B movies, like, uh, like the Angel movies or like uh, Buford's Beach Bunnies, or, you know, stuff like that. <laughs> Sorority Babes in the Slime Ball, <laughs> Bullarama. But then some, like, you know, they would occasionally show, like, a Paul Morrissey movie, like, Blood for Dracula, or, like, Clint Eastwood, like, Every Which Way But Loose, some auteur stuff, but, yeah, stuff like that, and then, like, but really trauma was, like, how I conceived of independent movies, you know, more than, like, a Sundance or IFC or something that, it, oh, yeah, I like that type of shit, and then it wasn't really till college that I got more into, like, Herzog or Fassbender and... Warhol, that type of stuff. But yeah, mostly just gross out com comedies. <laughs> what was your favorite trauma movie from the catalog? I was obsessed with Toxic Avenger 2, the one where he goes to Japan. <laughs> um, I don't know. It's like, I really don't remember. I mean, I saw it like a zillion times. It was like, but I don't remember it that well now. I know he like windsurfs to Japan <laughs> and like they shot it in Japan. And it's just like a Wasn't bunch like of like... Toxic One really big in Japan and we kind of became like a superhero. Been, yeah. So I think they knew there was financing there. So they said, sure, we'll give us the money. We'll shoot it over there, whatever. Totally, totally. And it's kind of interesting that I guess like Lloyd Kaufman went to high school with Oliver Stone. I guess they were like best friends. And then they all, then Oliver Stone, Lloyd Kaufman and George W. Bush all went to Yale together in the same class. <laughs> oh my so God. I just read the Oliver Stone autobiography and I was like really hoping I was going to be able to get some good, uh, Lloyd Kaufman anecdotes and stuff, but he kind of, uh, skirted around that. So I was sadly, uh, deprived, <laughs> but yeah, I like that. I like class of New class of Newcomb high. Also. That's my favorite. Yeah. yeah. And, um, it's funny that right before the last movie I saw in the theater before, um, COVID was uh, the Coca-Cola Kid, the Makaveev movie. But um, a, a few nights, like the very last night before everything shut down, like most of my friends saw a 35 print of Surf Nazis Must Die. And uh, <laughs> I really uh, regretted not going to that. <laughs> Who was screening that? It was this series called The Deuce. Um, they do it at Nighthawk, uh, Nighthawk Cinema in Williamsburg. And... Um, our friends uh, curate this thing once a month where they show like a kind of Times Square grindhouse movie and um, there's like a little presentation and raffle and sort of historic thing and um, it's very fun. It's a great series and um, I guess now they're doing it on Mo on movie. Um, yeah. So trying they just started I think like a week ago, but yeah. Wasn't William Lustig doing a series like that he did a, he's been done a million things with them yeah 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 he's he's like great he's like one of those guys that is beyond listenable you know to hear talk like and, and he would choose yeah i think like once a year he would choose like a movie 
I always like yeah. that he keeps on taking shots at Criterion's artwork, saying, it's so boring. I mean, look at my cover <laughs> of Maniac. It's a guy holding a severed head. Who won't buy oh this? God. And he was like, oh, your Criterion's, if you like, your cute little sketches and drawings are boring, you know, put some real artwork on there. Yeah, that's agreed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I just watched Vigilante not that long ago. It was very sick. <laughs> but um, Yeah, I bought yeah. the Deluxe Maniac um, remaster of it looks spectacular it just looks like he still maintains yes. that real scummy grainy 16 mil look and it just really looks yes yeah, half like a real. snuff movie or something it's got a to- <laughs> total vibe to it nice How did you get into filmmaking? Yeah, well, I went to, um, I went to, um, for undergrad, I did sort of cinema studies. I thought I might be into production and I took a couple classes and I really didn't like it very much and took a more sort of academic route. And, um, I kind of thought that might be what I was going to do, but I was like, fuck it. I really want to get into it. So I applied, I got into NYU for grad school and, um, yeah, I had never really made anything, um, before then. It just sounded like a very, I like the idea of being a director because it's like, it sounds like, you know, in my head, it's like, it seems like you just work a few weeks every few years, (laughs) you know, (laughs) and make something awesome and, uh, you know, get better as you get older, you know, so that seemed like a good, career path um so yeah i went to nyu and um it was really you know i had a couple of great teachers and a couple not great teachers and you know it was a real everything about it was the trying to get you to do stuff very big use a lot of lights use a lot of equipment and i did a sort of thesis that was on 35 and it was this whole production and i was kind of um turned off by that um trying to scale up. <laughs> so I did, yeah, this movie um, that was truly a, like a true zero budget movie um, that I made while I was, I did while I was kind of right after I, I quit Kim's, I worked with Abel Farrar for a long time. That's a whole other thing. But, and then made this sort of just super zero budget comedy with my friends. Um, and it was, just really enjoyable process and I really um enjoyed making it and enjoyed how it turned out and sort of have just been trying to find a niche to make these small entertaining comedies you know and um yeah but I wasn't like making movies as a kid or anything was this happy life or was this yeah, something yeah. before that's, okay that's happy life yeah um and I guess there was a whole side thing where I was like gonna do a documentary for hbo and it was this whole thing and they were like it was just this whole lengthy process involving all money and meetings and blah 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 and i was like this is really not you know i want to actually make something you know not have a hundred meetings for something that's not going to happen you know so happy life you know it was self-financed but it's you know nothing it cost like close to zero dollars <laughs> you know and um, it was just about do- committing to doing it, you know, and just working with friends and not making it a big production or a big um, process, you know. I really get freaked out when I listen to things like the Directors Guild podcast where they say, oh, I wrote the script in 2000 and then I shopped it and then it was in development hell for five years and then we were going to get funding from this company and it didn't happen. And I'm like, Jesus Christ, how can you, I don't know. I just find it so despairing and so discouraging. I, I don't think I could have the perseverance to keep going for that long a time on a project. Completely. Yeah. It's just like, it's beyond my comprehension to like fight for 10 years or something to make this, you know, 
one thing and it can only be anticlimactic. Yeah, and because that was the other thing, like when you're in school and I was doing these bigger things, you know, it's like I would have real specific expectations when you go into a project, you know, this is what I want it to be. This is what I think it's going to be. And it's never that, you know, it's something different. So I really, when I was able to detach my expectations and enjoy the things that change on set and enjoy the things that change with the actors, it becomes much more uh, fulfilling, you know, to figure things out as you go along. But like to have this rigid, this is what I want to do. I need to do this thing. It just sounds like brutal. Yeah. <laughs> what was the pitch for your HBO documentary? Oh, it was about, um, I did a short documentary about these filmmakers who lived in New Jersey and they made like, um, these kind of like sort of pornographic movies, like in their parents' basement and they got arrested for, um, bringing guns to a school. They were, they made the very first <laughs> Columbine, they made the very first Columbine movie <laughs> before uh, elephant or any of that stuff. It was called duck, the carbine high story. And, um, it was like a media sort of scandal, I guess, from like two, early 2000s and um yeah it was fun i just thing and they uh hbo really liked it and it was going to be part of some series i think that was called like pornocopia or something and um but it didn't really happen and it was kind of i was just like i really um abandoned that project and was just you know i want to do something that i know is going to happen i know i can make and um no one's gonna mess it up you know and how did you meet Abel, Abel? And how did you guys start working together? Um, he, I was friends with the um, uh, daughter of one of the producers of Chelsea on the Rocks. So I got a job on the crew and it was just like a really tiny crew. It was like six people or something, you know? So I really just walked into pure absolute total chaos you know um he was really at working at peak performance and um you know so i was kind of just like a it was kind of like a pa production manager you know just kind of working on some logistics but like he was living in the hotel the producers were living in the hotel um there's an editing room in the hotel and we were just like running around the chelsea hotel like complete maniacs like knocking on people's doors, interviewing them, like it was a 24 hour a day kind of job. And we just um, hit it off really, really well. And, um, you know, my job was mostly just going to the deli to buy beer <laughs> occasionally. And, um, and it was great. You know, you got like, you know, I feel really lucky, you know, you, you not to just meet one of your heroes, but to actually work with them was great. And I yeah, became his assistant and we worked on a ton of projects. I did, um, I produced, Mul so after the Chelsea Hotel, he moved to Little Italy and I produced his movie Mulberry Street, which was just us running around Little Italy during the San Gennaro Festival and um, just complete and total absolute chaos. You know, I was like in my 20s, he's in his 50s. And he was going harder than anyone I'd ever met. And uh, yeah, it was cool. And then he executive produced my uh, Happy Life, my first uh, feature. And um, yeah, we just worked on a ton of, there's a whole bunch of great projects that never happened from that time that I, would, I wish did. The, the most of, uh, the big one being, did you ever hear about the Jekyll and Hyde that he was working on? Oh my God. I heard it on a podcast where he said it was going to be like, didn't he want like DMX or 50 it's cent? The, as it's the... like the greatest script ever. And it was like about, it was like weeks away from shooting and it just felt all fell apart at the last minute. It was going to be on um, Forrest Whitaker is Dr. Jekyll and 50 cent is Mr. Hyde. <laughs> so Forrest Whitaker turns into 50 cent and, uh, Matthew Modian was like investigating it and it was going to be this like avant-garde kind of black exploitation Jekyll and Hyde movie that all took place in like a townhouse and a, it was a bummer that that didn't happen. But yeah, we, 
there's a whole bunch of stuff like that. And then we did this, like, uh, we did a web series for Vice called The Pizza Connection that was pretty ridiculous. And, um, yeah, it was just great working all the time and having someone you could, you know, ask questions about anything. And he really is like an encyclopedia of, he's been working forever. You know, he really knows how everything works. And, um, yeah, then I made Hellaware. I stopped, I didn't work on 444. I made my second movie, Hellaware, then. And we didn't work for a while after that. But then a couple of years ago, he came back here and I um, produced The Projectionist, the one that just came out about a um, movie theater owner, uh, who guy who owns Cinema Village in New York. We made that. And uh, yeah, he's really fun to work with. Is he difficult, as they say, or is he, or is that exaggerated or do we just hear about the chaotic oh, side of his life you know he's uh, passionate <laughs> and but it helps to be a big fan you know of his to to work on these projects you know but um no he's really the most hardworking person i know he's always doing like 10 things at once you know he's like on the phone making talking about the next movie while editing the one he's doing while watching a Jets game, you know, just doing a hundred things at once, 24 hours a day. It's really um, kind of an amazing thing to see. So, yeah. <laughs> but it is very, very, very intense, these these uh, shoots, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's really thrilling to see his comeback and how prolific he's been these recent it's years. It's amazing. It's absolutely amazing. He, um, Yeah, we did the Saint Laurent thing. Um, there was a whole part of that that was going to... like We had all these big plans for last year that got canceled, which, yeah, there was a few projects that didn't happen. And uh, But then, yeah, he just shot that other one, the um, Ethan Hawke, Zeros and Ones, which is going to be very sick. And it's... um, Yeah, Sean shot that. And then our friend Stephen Gerowitz is uh, one of the editors on it. And he... So these are the same... You know, Sean shot my new one and Stephen edited it. So these projects have been happening kind of parallel and it's um yeah it's just been exciting to see uh how much sick stuff he's doing how about king of new york part two was that ever oh, gonna happen time. yeah 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 that was exactly that era <laughs> oh man that was uh yeah we were, we're uh yeah no there are all sorts of meetings about that the um it was going to be like part found footage. Like he wanted it to be like a archival footage of like seventies. And then, yeah, there was a whole bunch of different people that were attached to it at different times. I'm kind of surprised that it. A24 need to give him the budget to produce that. That would be spectacular. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> definitely. It seems like, uh, no, and he's, he's one of those guys where it's just the quality has been, so consistent you know it's like i love all these new movies just as much as the old ones he's really um and the and also like being sober now and still going hard you know and it really hasn't affected the work on any level so that's a inspiring thing to see you know um what did you learn from abel what was the best advice you took going into making your first feature um, well, yeah, that's interesting. I guess he, the two, th he really recommended shooting, uh, within walking distance of your house <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, which is really kind of something he always does really more or less like Chelsea hotel is in the shooting in the hotel. Marcy's in the place. 444 was like a few blocks away from his place. Tommaso's in his apartment, his real apartment, <laughs> you know? And, um, yeah, just something about, and, uh, yeah, so I kind of did take that advice, and, uh, yeah, I shot in my apartment, and just within a few blocks of where I live, and, um, you know, then you don't have the hassle of, you know, doing these complicated moves, and <laughs> all this stuff, and really living, and shooting it in a place that you know, and you're familiar with, and, um, I've kind of done that on, pretty much for most of my movies, also, like, this, uh, shoot within a few blocks you know i really like uh that <laughs> or even like driller killer you know that was his house also you know? oh really That's, yeah that was his apartment in his building and really just shot within a couple blocks <laughs> so it's only like siberia he's really ventured for that is a new that was a whole yeah. new uh whole new vibe, <laughs> and that sounded very brutal <laughs>
Yeah, that sounded savage. Yeah. Let's talk about your love of happy hardcore. I <laughs> I tuned into your Alara DJ, your first DJ set. Oh, nice. The Technobilly one. <laughs> yeah. I recommend to all my listeners, find Mike Bill's first DJ set on Alara FM. You will just smash out all your life admin, all your emails, any house chores. Just go for it. It's so fucking relentless and intense. You just get shit done. Yeah, no, I've heard, I've got, like, it's funny. It's like, you know, no, no one's, like, actually partying that hard. So it's like, people are like, yeah, it's great to, like, exercise to or do the dishes. <laughs> yeah, I was you just know? doing house chores and emails <laughs> and just banging out so much work that day. I was like, shit, just Cotton Eye yeah. Joe just doing it for me. It's weird because it's not something I was always that into. So, like, when we made Happy Life, you know, which is about this happy hardcore trance record store, you know, it was kind of, the movie's really about Kim's, you know, in my experience there and being on a, a sinking ship. But, like, the happy hardcore element was more, these stores did exist and it was kind of just to give it a comedic element, you know, like being into something that literally at the time no one was into and doubling down on your uh, passion for that. Um, so we, uh, Spectacle Theater, they did a screening of Happy Life a couple years ago and they asked, it was on 420 and they asked if we could, if I would do like a live um, like VJ set or something to go along with it. And I just like, it really opened a can of worms of like delving into a lot of this happy hardcore Eurodance, Euro House type music, and we made like a little hour long kind of video montage of music from like '92 to like '96, like mostly Dutch, German, Belgian, you know, music. And I became obsessed, and I started just for fun making this playlist that was just like Euro country, like techno Billy stuff, like Hot Night Joe, you know. So I found like a Smurfs version of Hot Night Joe. And it was just, it was just this project of just looking specifically for that type of niche. And then when uh, they started the Alara Radio, that was our first episode. And then I was like, shit, we got like, I've dug myself into this hole where I have to come up with themes. So it became the next one was like classical techno, you know, like ones that sample <laughs> classical music. <laughs> And then we did the one for all baby themed, you know, which is a weird aspect of that culture is like the pacifiers and the, there's like so many baby themed, like, like seven dwarfs themed, like, or hi ho, like, like nursery rhymes, you know, over dance music. And then we did that. Then we did like, um, there was like an outer space one. So, but by the end, I was really struggling to think of how many themes there really, <laughs> really are to uh, this type of music. And I started working on like, there was going to be like a sex themed one I never did. There was going to be like a money themed one, but I didn't really have enough. So by the end, I was just kind of randomly pulling stuff. But uh, it was like a great project for when you're stuck at home for a few months, you know, just listening to this stuff 24 7 and really going deep <laughs> by the time this comes out all three of the films will be on the channel so Excellent. let's move on to hellaware how do you pitch that this is one of the things i found when talking about you i find it so hard to pitch your movies i think you just you have such a singular unique almost mike bill's universe that your movies are really hard to pitch or explain i find yeah, it is. And I mean, the upside to doing it, having done it a bunch of times now, at least people can see the previous ones and you know, this is what it's going to be, you know, versus just trying to explain it. But um, yeah, I mean, Hellaware was, so the idea of this is it's about a photographer who's trying to make a name for himself. This is like 2013, I think. And he discovers this sort of like uh, white rap horrorcore group in Delaware and decides to embed himself with them and take a bunch of scandalous uh, photos of them to try and get a big art show. And they wind up having a falling out and it's about the culture clash between this sort of 
highbrow urban art world and this uh, suburban rap community who are both trying to use each other to make names for themselves. And um, yeah, it's funny because it was like very much the tail end of that time when everyone wanted to be like a bad boy, you know, and behave badly, be a, a kind of edgelord. And, um, you know, where you everyone was making art that was, you know, trying to be scandalous mm. and trying to be a provocative. And he was sort of uh, trying to make a name, the character's trying to make a name for himself by being this uh, kind of art world bad boy. And I, I think it's the talent that sort of happened at the tail end of that culture. Like if we were to do it now... He would be showing what a good person he is. You know, He's like total virtue signaling. Yeah. Ex- yeah. And ex- being just as exploitative and, you know, being just as condescending, but he would do it, I think, under the veneer of uh, what a great uh, contribution he's doing to the world by, you know, photographing these people. Did you make all the Young Torture Killers tracks yourself? Um, It was with. Um, uh, it was a collaboration, yeah. <laughs> Did you base them off anyone? Uh, that, that track kind of sounds like a Salem track to me. I think it's the Cut Your Dick Off track. So like <laughs> yeah, I guess like it's funny because I think like yeah, Salem basically came out right around that time. It, it uh, Yeah, it's funny. There are some uh, comparisons. Um, I don't think it was, you know, obviously there's the insane composite aspect, you know, yeah, there. definite juggalo but vibes. I don't think there was any, um, there was no specific um, reference. It's just more to that genre, just the horrorcore genre. <laughs> there was stores in London that just sell American candy. And I'm sure I spent like £10 on a bottle of Fago, which <laughs> is just ridiculous. Yeah, it's a real regional thing. Like, you... Um, I've seen it like once or twice in New York, but it's not really like it really is. I, I think a very specific Midwest thing and uh, to Michigan in particular, because I wouldn't even see it in Chicago that much. Uh, but yeah, it's exciting when you see it in the wild. <laughs> yeah, I know the president of a company absolutely despises them. Yeah. And, and Shaggy's just like, I can't wait for you to die. I'm just going to buy your company and run the Fago empire for myself. Yeah, no, it's, and it's the classic conundrum where you might not like them, but they're also, like, have done more marketing for you than any... Oh, they're <laughs> so else. moving so many units. Like, the amount, yeah, the, the like, amount they pop off at the shows alone is crazy. It's so funny. Yeah, it's the classic, you don't get to choose your fans, you know? <laughs> it's <laughs> like, they, uh, yeah. <laughs> um, let's talk um, about Job's World. It feels yeah. like almost like a cyberpunk noir movie to me with like Gregoraki vibes. That's Oh man. Great. I love hearing that. I love Gregoraki and I love cyberpunk stuff. It um Yeah, we were definitely going for that. I mean I love John Mortsugu, Gregoraki, like that type of uh specific comedy. But um Yeah, you know, so Jobs is about this like rollerblading, uh drug dealer and I um and I kind of like that whole like one night in New York genre so it's just you know one night of him rollerblading around selling drugs and then he meets his, one of his favorite actors who dies and he's sort of on the run and uh yeah we that was another real zero budget one we shot it in like a week and um yeah I love the way Sean shoots at night I think he's that's always looks spectacular when he films New York at night. Yeah, it's great. I love it. I love shooting in and shooting outside is so fun too at night, you know. It's just like a great you know, energy and you only and with a crew of just a couple of people, we really just felt like we could just run around do whatever we want, you know. And um yeah, we're just super mobile and just down for whatever um so it was really it was super fun to make and um you know it's just one of those things where we do it like all of these they there was a short shoot with a few people and just one kind of burst of energy you know and try and keep it as um spontaneous but also scripted and um yeah just like a document of us going out and acting like idiots yeah 
<laughs> How do you produce your movies? Do you do you have go to investors now, or do you um, shop around? I have no. They're all financed through um, friend like producers who I have a, a personal relationship with. You know, I have, a, um, I have an old friend who's a doctor who um, I've been working with, and he's been great. You know, because it's someone who really understands the work and likes it and um, excited to keep working with him. And, um, but yeah, none of these have been done through like uh, studios or, or companies or anything like that. They're like really independent. But um, I guess Factory 25 has distributed the last two, but that was something that happened after we made it. It wasn't like from the beginning. Yeah. And they're the best. I'm a very big fan of Factory 25. I love Matt. He's done so many yeah. great things for small, well, indie mo- the indie world in general. Yeah, no one else on earth would have that body of work. It's just so unique to him and to taking chances on, you know, stuff that's not necessarily commercial and just completely out there. Um, so he really is a total hero. Yeah, I'm a very big fan. And how did how was it shooting your new movie? <laughs> you shot in lockdown. I did. Yeah, it was a very quick shoot um, with a few people. In uh, we shot it all in Soho, and um, yeah, yeah, it was just you know the classic thing. It was really just super spared down. You know, not that many people worked on it, so it was a. a reasonably safe environment i think and uh, everyone's alive and fine so um but yeah i don't want to say too much about it but uh it's uh it's getting there we're editing right now so i'm excited to show it will it be out this year do you think definitely definitely oh sick yeah i mean definitely i think so There you go. That was me and Mike Blandick. Again, all his movies are available for rent on our channel. Check them out. Thanks as always to our engineer, Ewan Hinselwood, and to Telephone Tel Aviv, who made all our beautiful music you heard. That's it from me. See you next time.